You wanted the best. You've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Moss here from thechrismasshow.com. I'm sure you thought you were turning into, uh, I don't know, The View or something. But no, you're on The Chris Voss Show. Welcome. Welcome, one and all. As always, you folks know the drill. We've been doing this for 12 years. Go see all of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those crazy places. Go see our large group on uh, LinkedIn. It's 132,000 people, just a few people here and there. Also, subscribe to that LinkedIn newsletter. I think's killing it over there. It's just hotter than hot. Also, go to YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Voss. You can see all the uh, wonderful things we have going on over there and the amazing authors and CEOs and people that we've had on the show. And finally, go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss. You can see my books and uh, all the wonderful authors we have on the show over there as well. Today, we have an amazing gentleman on the show. I don't know. You know, we just put in the Google machine, amazing gentlemen who are brilliant authors and women too. We should, we should make sure that we're, we put, you know, who are the smartest people on this planet into the Google machine and out they come and we schedule appointments with them. Today, we have former Congressman Will Hurd on the show with us. He is the author of the newest book uh, that came out March 29. 2022. Uh, the name of the book is American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting big things done. I've been getting a chance to read it, and it's a wonderful read everyone should get into. He is a former congressman, a cybersecurity executive, a CIA author, or I'm sorry, a CIA officer, and a niece on author. I was just jumping ahead there. He's an author of America Reboot, this new book we'll be talking about today. He's currently the managing director of Allen & Company and a former member of Congress, cybersecurity executive, and undercover officer in the CIA. Welcome to the show, Mr. Hurd. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. It's awesome to be on with you. Awesome sauce. Awesome sauce. So seeing you smile during that intro, we had uh, Dave Navarro, uh, the musician, on uh, a couple weeks ago, and he's like, did I just enter a WWE thing or something? What's, what's going on there? Well, I, I don't want to. I don't want to cause anybody's brain to bleed. Okay, you know, I want to. I want to expand their horizons and get them thinking about things. But, but a bleeding a, a bleeding brain may may not be a good thing. You know, I, you bring up a good point. I should run that by the attorneys and make sure that we're okay there. We don't want to yeah. do anything. So, uh, give us your plugs, please, so people can find you on the interwebs and get to know you better. Yeah, so I'm on all the H-U-R-D, and my website is willbeheard.com. You know, we have a newsletter there where I try to talk and give a different take on the on the issues of the day, but it's um, willheard, H-U-R-D, and, and whatever socials you really enjoy. There you go. In fact, I subscribed to your newsletter as well. I'm on Thank there. You. So uh, thanks for putting that out. So what motivated you to want to write this book? Look, the, 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 the real story is I got approached by someone in Washington, D.C., summer of 2019. So have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, no, I haven't. And then then I started thinking about it. And I was like, wait, if, if I did write a book, 
that was nonfiction, what would it, what would it be about? And, and, and I started with thinking, what are those things that I tried to talk about when I was in Congress? And, mm-hmm. and so this notion that I believe there's five generational defining challenges that the country is faced with that mm-hmm. needs to be addressed. And so, so when I said, okay, those are those five things I always talk about. Then I was like, you know, my opinion, how did my opinions on those issues form? And when I looked at all of them, there was five, six, seven specific events that have happened in my career, whether it, when it was when I was recruiting spies and stealing secrets for the CIA or breaking into banks and stealing their money and show them how I did it when I was in the cybersecurity business or, you know, when I was when I was walking the halls of Congress. And so that's why, you know, all the chapters and all the stories are based on those those experiences that led me um, to that conclusion. I try to take the reader on that journey. So so when I had that kind of idea, it was like, okay, let's just start writing it. And, and look, I love my country. I've been fortunate to serve. Chris, I know you know about that. And I want to make sure uh, we say the number one country on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's not a, that's not a fait accompli. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me to be able to talk about what we need to do, how, you know, I tell the story and when I was in the CIA, the lesson you learn about get off the X, we got to do things differently. And, and, and ultimately that's why I wrote the book. There you go. So give us an arcing overview, uh, like kind of a, a 30,000 foot view that people would be like, what's in this thing? Sure. So look, 72% of Americans think the country's on the wrong track. And, and is it only and 72? Yeah. <laughs> right. Look, there's, there's some optimists and, and there's some optimists, right? We'll and look, and that trend, yeah, that trend has been growing for, for some time. And, and this is a kind of a guide in a memoir to say how we get on a different track. And, mm-hmm. and I talk about how the Republican Party needs to evolve and start looking like America. I talk about how we need a national leaders that are more interested in inspiring rather than fear mongering. I talk about how we need domestic policy that is based on empowering people, not empowering the government. And I talk about a, a foreign policy that requires us to have our friends love us and our enemies to fear us. And then I talk about technology, how we need to take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. Those are kind of like the five big, big sections. And I break down um, each section into a number of chapters to talk about what does that actually mean. And, and, and ultimately, it's also it's an insider's account of how some things happen and how, how things get done in Congress. I tell a bunch of CIA stories about what it was like being a, a case officer. And then I give some perspective on what I've learned when I was in business. There you go. The CIA stories, you, you kind of launched the book talking about some of the lessons you learned uh, being at the CIA. And, and of course, it's, it's quite the interesting business uh, to be in. And you, you learn so much about, you know, like you, you talk about some of the different key, like key words, key lessons, key things that they teach you that you have to use in the, in the theater to, to work the trade of, of spycraft, but also to stay alive. Look, one hundred percent, and it was it was an amazing job, a job I never thought I was going to get into. Right, mm-hmm. I I went to Texas A and M University. I got a degree in computer science. I thought I was going to be a coder, right? And and I, you know, I had never really been outside of Texas. And it's my freshman year in college. I'm walking across campus, and I see a sign that said, "Take two journalism classes." 
in Mexico City for four hundred and twenty five dollars. And I had 450 bucks in my bank account. So I go to Mexico, fell in love being in another culture. I thought it was cool seeing things I only read about in books. And I decided I had international studies as a minor. Wow. And I had this former CIA officer who told these amazing stories as a guest lecturer. And it was like, I want to do that. And the experience it, it, it gave me, it made me appreciate some of these things that we take for granted here at, at home. I, I remember my, in that first class I took in international studies, the first lesson was on the rule of law. And, eight, and eight, my 18-year-old self was like, the rule of law? Of course there's rule of law. This is dumb. Like, why? A whole section a whole section talking about rule of law? Like, what the heck, man? You know, this is, this is, a, this is a, of course there's rule of law. And I didn't realize how important that was until I lived in places that didn't have rule of law, right? Yeah. And, and so, so it just being in cultures that very different from, from my own, it, it made me realize how, how, how awesome and how lucky and how fortunate we are to live here. And then also I learned a lot about human behavior. Mm-hmm. When, when you're recruiting spies and stealing secrets, it requires you to understand other people and, and understand people's motivations. And, and, and so that was something. And, and then when you talk about collecting intelligence, the thing I learned in the CIA, you, in order to understand the truth, you got to talk to a whole lot of people. And where that overlap is, that's as close as you're going to get to the truth as you can possibly get, right? Mm-hmm. And so using that skill set when it came times to evaluating a, a bunch of competing opinions in Congress was, was really valuable. And it was, it was, it was an awesome, it was awesome time. And, and to be able to share some of that perspective and some of the stories and, and and a lot of times when I made mistakes, right, it was, it it was glad. And and those were, and they got it all approved by the CIA. So those are, those are, I won't have to kill anybody uh, for for reading those stories. Well, I won't have to worry about it then. Okay. So the book is a, is a great book. It's almost like you, you sat down and you laid out what politics should be the most optimal, perfect scenario of what really government should do for its people. You cite the Constitution and and what its vision was uh, attempting to be. And it, it seems like you do that. You sit down and, and it, you don't only take the Republican Party to task, but you sit all politics and you, mm-hmm. you say, this is kind of the perfect utopia of what politics should be. In my opinion, I don't, you tell me if I'm wrong. No, look, I, I appreciate that because that's what I tried to do. And, and look, I, the, the way I describe my philosophy it's pragmatic idealism. Mm-hmm. And, and, and idealism is based on how do we help the greatest number of people possible based on the realities of where we are today. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to understand where you are today in order to figure out. And then you got to understand what's your vision, right? Like I, I learned in college from some consultant vision process structure. You got to start with where are you trying to go? And, and so that's what I tried to outline in the, in the, in the book is where do we need to go in order to address these generational defining challenges to make sure this century continues to be the American century? And then how do we get there based on where we are right now? And, and so, cause look, what I'm talking about and what I outlined is hard. You know, some of my criticisms have been, this is too rosy of a picture. No, it's, it's, it's based in realism and, and it's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Every country would be doing it. And so, so, so that's what I tried to do. And so, and so you, you, you're right on with, with, and this is the way we can say, Hey, there's a different way. Right? <laughs> saying the country is on, like, like saying the country's on the wrong track is only one first step. 
Mm-hmm. What's the right track? What track do we want to go on to? Like, and then how do we get to that track? And, and that's where I try to give some, some opinions and perspective based on, you know, my time in dangerous places, halls of Congress and boardrooms of businesses. Well, you know, you talked to, in the CIA, you learn how to get as close as you can to the truth. And I think, and I get the sense from talking to you and a call also in the book that that's really important to you, that pragmatic idealism to, to do the best for everyone. And that actually makes more sense now when I read the book. You talk in the book about making sure that your audio meets your video. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. My, my, my first chief of staff was one of my best friends and he ruined my life by suggesting I run for Congress. So I ruined his by making him my first chief of staff and he used to always say he he used to always say he goes the frustration that the public has with elected officials is oftentimes when their audio and their video doesn't act where where your words Mm -hmm. don't reflect what you actually do right so you do is your video your words is your audio and and what i always try to do was was be ideologically consistent i got 21 pieces of legislation signing the law in six years that's a lot. It's more than what most people do in a couple of decades. And I did that. I'm a Republican. I did that under a Republican president and a Democratic president. I did that under a Republican Speaker of the House and a Democratic Speaker of the House. Right. And mm-hmm. so I tried to behave the same way, regardless of whether the people in power were wearing my jersey or not. And mm-hmm. and so so the the. The thing that, that I benefited from representing a 50-50 district. So, so the district I represented in Texas was 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It took two and a, a ten, 10, it took 10 and a half hours to drive from one corner of the district to the other at 80 miles an hour, which was the speed limit in most of the district. But I find out the hard way it wasn't the speed limit in all of the districts, right? And, and it was, it was larger. It's basically the size of the state of Georgia. And it was 50-50, meaning, you know, there was 50% Republicans, 50% Democrats. And it was a seat that went back and forth every cycle until I was able to hold it for three years in a row, three terms in a row. And what I learned in a 50-50 district, no matter what you do, half the district's pissed off with you. (laughs) And and, and so, so, so that required you, that required you to explain what you were doing and why you were doing it. And so as people understood that, and, and I would always tell folks, do you agree with your spouse 100% of the time? Do you agree with your best friend 100% of the time? Of course the answer is no, right? So, <laughs> so why are you expecting to agree with your mayor or city council or congressman 100% of the time? And people, people actually don't expect that. But they want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, mm-hmm. and so, so to me, the best way that encapsulate what you should be doing is your audio, and your video must match. And I think you put your finger on the real disconnect that people see with politicians. You know, as I read your book and other things, I'm a strategist. I mean, that's what I do in business. And so I'm like, okay, how can you apply this? How do you pull back some of these things? You know, it's interesting that, you know, we we accept that politicians lie to us and we let it slide, but yet and and politicians know they can lie to us and and many will will lie to us because they're like, well, they expect us to lie to them, and it was this weird circular bag that goes nowhere. And so as I was reading, you know, 
uh, what you put forth is, is I'm like, how do we drag back to these ideals or how do we, you know, and, and I, I imagine we just need more people like yourself who want to stand up and say, there's always a better way. I mean, this is what I learned in all my companies. There's always a better way. No matter, even if you build a better way, there's a better way than the better way. And so, yeah, I, I looked at it and I went, God, how do we, how do you, how do you revolutionize this? How do we adopt it? There's a couple, there's a couple of ways, actually. And I, I really appreciate the question and the fact that, that you're thinking about that, right? And before I explain it, let me, tell another story that I was exposed to. I was, I was, I forget what year it was. And I think I tell this story in the book. I'm on a, I'm on a panel of a bunch of YouTube sensations. The other four people on the panel had a billion subscribers to YouTube combined. I think at that point I had like 65. Okay. So I'm like, I'm like, why am I on this panel? It's like, okay, whatever. I'm here. And, and one of the people on the panel was the digital director for the rock, Dwayne Johnson. Mm. And, and this was right when the movie Moana was coming out. And she said, she goes, if Moana fails at the box office, are we going to blame moviegoers for not going to the movie? Or are we going to say Moana is a crummy movie? Right? You obviously say Moana is a crummy movie. Now, I'm not saying Moana is a crummy movie, by the way. I think it's a quite delightful movie and was a, it was a success at the box office. But her point was only in politics do you blame voters for not coming out instead of saying the electors or the people that are wanting to get elected are not putting, are putting out a crappy product. And look, my, my home state of Texas, we just went through a primary on March 1st. Three million people voted. That's Republicans and Democrats. Out of 30, that's a lot of voter apathy. And part of the reason, in my opinion, is that people that are running for office are not putting forward something that that the, the public, you know, are, are not smelling what they're cooking, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, so, so it starts with the opportunity for people that are running for office to, to provide something and do something and, and talk about things that people actually care about. That's point one. Point two is we need – People that show up, we need more people voting in primaries. It's mm-hmm. that simple. Anywhere between 2 and 6% of the people decide most of these seats um, because the seat is decided in a primary. Yeah. That's, not a lot, that's not a lot of people. And, and so, so those are the two opportunities. And, and the professional political class, people that run races, pollsters, digital vendors, all that stuff, they say to talk to likely primary voters. Mm-hmm. So everybody talks to the same people every single cycle, which means you get the same results. And mm-hmm. so the opportunity, it's hard what I'm talking about doing. It's hard. But also as individuals, we need to model the behavior we want to see. I, I, I doubt many of your listeners have ever clicked on an article that said, Congress worked. Hooray. Right? <laughs> That's true. Right. Wait, are there articles like, like somebody threw a chair, right? Or yeah. there was some drama. And so we need to be modeling the behavior that 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 we want to see. And and I think we do those things. And the, again, it sounds simple. They're hard to actually do. If we do that, we're going to start seeing the kind of discourse that needs to happen. Because why does all this matter? Mm-hmm. This matters because if we want to continue to be able to put food on our table a roof over our head and make sure the people we love be healthy, happy, and safe. We got to have serious competition of ideas about these challenges that we're facing and not just be throwing, uh, having a political food fight on every topic. 
Yeah. I was reading something recently about, about uh, I think it was in Axios, and it talked about how, hey, you know, there's only a small uh, group of American people that are on Twitter being toxic. Most people don't even tweet. I think it was like 71% yeah. of Americans don't even tweet or aren't even on Twitter probably. And And you start realizing, you know, where people are at in the base, you know. So the one of the things you do talk in the in the book about is technology. We we talked a little bit about Allen Company before the show. Is Congress, you know, you, let's talk about what you talk about in the book for technology, and then is Congress really prepared? I mean, the future wars are going to be PC wars, or you know, uh, uh, sure, all this sort of stuff we're going on with the internet. Short answer is Congress prepared to regulate and deal with these kinds of issues? Absolutely not. Right. Are, are our agencies prepared to introduce the kinds of technologies we need in order to defend against the technologies that can be used against us? Not the pace, not the pace that it should. As a society, are we prepared for jobs that don't exist today? No. Right. And, and, and so, so, and, 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 and this is not just about the United States achieving our best self. We are in a competition. And, 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 and to me, uh, we, we talk a lot about being in a new, in a new Cold War with, with the Russians, you know, especially with what's happening in Ukraine. But the new Cold War that we're actually in is with the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. And the reason is the Chinese government has made it very clear that they are trying to surpass the United States of America as the global superpower. And they're going to do that by being a leader in a number of advanced technologies, things like 5G, AI, artificial intelligence. Quantum computing, hypersonics, space. Right? There's there's about twelve or fourteen of these of these of these of these industries. Now, the U.S. and China can coexist at the same time. That's the perfect world. I will put my money on entrepreneurship, creativity, freedom any day of the week over over authoritarianism. Right, and so mm-hmm. the two countries we can coexist in the same world. But we must operate and compete by agreeing on the rules. Mm-hmm. And if China is agreed to be part of the World Trade Organization, then guess what? You can't be stealing people's technology and using it on your own. You can't be manipulating currencies. Like There's so many things. And so, so part of this, and you're right, the future of conflict is going to be in cyberspace. Cyberspace is a domain of conflict just like air land, sea, and space. And I I know a lot of folks have been watching and we thought that the Russians would have been doing more in cyberspace when it comes to the, when it comes to their invasion in Ukraine. And one of the reasons we haven't seen some of that is one, we were prepared, you know, back to December, the U S government and our allies were warning government, governmental entities and banks and hospitals be prepared, make sure you're, you're hardening your digital defenses. And then also the war is going so bad for the Russians that they haven't been able to focus some of their time and intention on some of these, on these, some of these cyber wars. But can we operate if our phones go off? If, if the, if the, if the Chinese government is able to jam our phones, can we, will we be able to operate? Right. One of the one of the scarier moments, I think, in, in, from a cyber attack recently, with I think it was last summer in Florida, there was a water treatment plant where uh, a cyber hack increased the amount of I think it was lye in the water to poison the water. Yeah. Now, imagine if if the hacker knew what that that system was that would that were alerting people to that dangerous level and turned it off. Mm-hmm. 
then you would have had a number of people killed from poisoning of water, right? Wow. These, these are the realities that we have to be prepared for. And there are some people in Congress that don't use email and are like, you know, is this thing on? Like, how do you get this, you know, how do you get this thing in this box? You know, and, and, <laughs> and, and that's unfortunate. If I move over here, does Google still know where I'm at? You know, whatever that was. <laughs> right, right, right. It was always funny. Yeah. It, it's, it's scary. I mean, I, I was trying to find the quote here. There's somebody who, who said, you know, the future of war is going to be AI and, and Russia and China know it and whoever wins the war on AI. And really, you know, what we've been talking about here and what a lot of people have to realize is the, 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 the thing that's built the American empire is that competition, like you say, of ideas. It's having the best ideas, but also merged with the spirit of, of the highest human I, I, spirit of ideal is, uh, I'm not getting to where I'm trying to go here, but, but the, the human spirit, bringing out the best, having that inspired instead of being contained or imprisoned or uh, squashed where you can be the best person you can be. You can have the freedoms that you have. And a lot of people take that for granted. I think some of that is to blame in our education, taking away civics. You know, I didn't understand how important the Constitution was. I, I was born here and was like, yeah, whatever that does. We got the freedom stuff, you know, like you mentioned earlier, where you grow up in this country and you don't really understand that, hey, there's some parts of this world that are very different. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes you just walk around with that American exceptionalism where you're like, we're the greatest country in the world. But you don't really realize what built that. And and then when you start finding out how important some of these some of these institutions and really what the foundation of that is, the Constitution, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, you write in your book about uh, the interesting experience, the unique experience that you had in Congress. You know, I used to watch you in Congress and watch what you do. And I'd be like, that's got to be a tough place to be because I would hear you speaking your truth and 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 trying to go through it. But, you know, you're dealing with Donald Trump, <laughs> which is a whole level of experience. And <clears throat> you're pretty unique as a minority in the party. Is, as, as, is, is that party brought any other minorities into it for the, since you left? Well, yeah. So, so, so look, I was the only, I was the only black Republican in the house. Now, now I believe there's currently two. There's probably mm-hmm. going to be three after this next election cycle. A number of, of Latino and Latina members of Congress, and and so the party is actually is actually diversifying, and, and we're growing in in other in other in, in in other parts of the country. Look, in South Texas, South and West Texas, where I'm from, the crisis at the border is is really significant, and. When you live on the border, the border crisis is actually a public safety issue. That's going to see a, a number of Latinos voting voting Republican for the for the first time. And but but the the the, the opportunity for us as the Republican Party is to is to grow the the base, right? Like one of the problems that we've had in this country for the last thirty years is neither party is trying to grow their their coalition. They're just trying to drive out the people, the existing folks to the greatest number possible. And, and so you see all these swings every two years and nothing of any significance is able to, is able to get done. And that's part of the problem. So the opportunity we have, and I think education is one of it. You talked about education in Texas, we have school choice, right? And so there's been a 20 year longitudinal study uh, done in Texas talking about how the achievement gap within black and brown communities when kids go to a charter school is eliminated. 
It's mm-hmm. like it's it, this is probably like one of the most significant things to happen in education, and, and we don't talk about it enough. This is something that we should be driving because ultimately, we have income inequality in in this country because we have education inequality. Yeah. And we're able to address that. So so that's a that's a long way away to say um, it's improving. We got a long way to go. Right, because there's two people that are seen as as opposite of what I what I'm talking about, and, and as you said, you know your your point about AI. It was actually Vladimir Putin who said that quote. Oh and yeah, he said whoever masters AI is going to master the world. That that was it, and that's probably the only thing he and I agree on. And 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 when we when you start thinking about how can can AI can level the playing field, but it also can further engrave, ingrain some of the problems that we have around equality, around access uh, to, to resources. And we need people that understand civics and philosophy and to, to think about what the role of technology should be in our society. Most definitely. Most definitely. <clears throat> you know, in, in your book, you, you lay out this whole utopia. And and you were an insider, and so I have a theory. This is my theory, and I, I'm a person who can go both ways. I've, I've both been a Republican. I'm a moderate Democrat. I have problems with the left wing crazy part of my party, you know, and I'm very critical of them. And honestly, you know, I followed Donald Trump since 1986. If if he would have vote, if he would have come across as Democrat, I would have voted for whatever on the Republican side. I just knew the man. And so I, I try and vote for what's best for this country. I do stick usually to moderate a Democrat because I kind of have to these days, but, but I, I would vote for whatever. Mm-hmm. But there, the one thing we've learned over time, especially on January 6th, seeing the Confederate flag in the rotunda or whatever in the, in that great house, the, that we haven't resolved the civil war and this country is built on 450 years of really racial problems and white power. Mm-hmm. And it's mixed with white religion, white nationalist religion or white religion, all of it. You know, even Putin can't, you know, do what he does without without the church, the, the church there in Russia support. And we have 450 years of this being in our DNA, being a huge problem. It's something we've never resolved. I mean, James Baldwin, you can take whatever James Baldwin said and print it in today's paper. And it's still true 60, 70 years later. And so in, in looking at, you know, the, in two, 2050, I believe it is. And I think you also cite this in your book. There's going to be a flipping of mm-hmm. from white power, people that are in the majority to people who are in a minority ruling this country. And I've seen voters, especially Republican voters say, we're really concerned that they're not going to be as nice to us as, 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 as we were to them for 450 years. And there's a real fear there. And to me, that's mm-hmm. kind of what this two party system has turned into. We have, Republicans on one side, and this is a theory, so feel free to throw uh, anything at me, but it, it seems like we've embraced this with the Republican Party that that it's about retaining that power as long as possible. And then the Democrats have kind of gone, okay, well, women are going to rise, minorities are going to rise, we just kind of accept it, run with it. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning any of our you know, left-wing stuff, and, you know, we're not perfect either. But does that need to be resolved? Am I, you know, you're an insider, I'm an outsider. Sure. Is that really a good Am I am I painting the picture right, or am I just fine? So so here's 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 how I would here's how I would articulate it. So so there are there have been elements of it's the old elements of the Democratic Party that created Jim Crow following Reconstruction. 
that broke away from the Democratic Party, the Dixiecrats that joined up, you know, with Republicans in order to win elections. Right. And, and I, I get into some of this history. I get into some of this history in the book. And so there have been elements of, you know, racist folks within the Republican Party. There's no question. But it's not the majority. Hmm. And it's not the voters. Right. It's not. And, and so. So look, my, my dad's black. My mom's white. Mm-hmm. They m- met in L.A., moved to San Antonio in 1971. Mm-hmm. The house my parents have lived in for 50 years is the only house, the only neighborhood that would sell to an interracial couple in the 70s, right? So that limited my brother, my sister, and I from the schools we were able to go to, mm-hmm. right? Now, I I still was okay. I succeeded. I was successful. All that kind of stuff, but but those 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 things have have ramifications and and impacts. The problem also now, I think, within the Democratic Party, is they have taken for granted that Black and Brown communities have historically voted Democrat mm-hmm. and are not following through. On 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 things to help the community, and and this is why I go back to education. Look, you know, you go to any you go to any majority black city in, in America, they want to know how are you going to make it easier to start new jobs, to start businesses, to hire employees, right? Like to to have the services you need. Everybody's worrying about education, and so so we have a chance in in order to talk to folks on 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 that and. And look, we have to recognize a, a, a former president of, an, of a, a historically black college and university, and I'm drawing a blank right now on her name, but once said, we've eliminated, um, we've eliminated racism from our laws, but we haven't eliminated it from our hearts and our minds. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so this is something that we still have to rectify and, and deal with and, and understand this this history of of our country and make sure and part of it's understand it so that we don't repeat it mm-hmm. right yeah. and that, <laughs> that that we accept it like right so, so like all this stuff you know it, it's oh it's okay to talk about all these terrible things that have happened because we have to recognize that the, the capacity mm-hmm. of human behavior mm-hmm. right and and so so I, I still believe here's what and, and I'll in I'll end my answer with this the shit my dad had to put up with, pardon my language, is nowhere near the stuff I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the stuff my nieces, you know, I have two sets of nieces, one's, one set 26, one set that are six. The things that they're dealing with is is very different than what I had to deal with, you know, g- growing up. So so we're seeing improvement. We're seeing change. But we got a ways to go. And we can't we can't we can't forget that and, and take our eye off the ball. There you go. Because I'm, you know, I'm watching the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmations and, you know, they voted along their party lines with the, sure. with the thing. And I'm like, and, and I assume, I mean, that's appealing to the voter base that they have, or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. So, so I, I would say on that, right, like, like what, what, what's interesting there is I, I think it's the, it's the, it's the judicial philosophy that's mm-hmm. more of the problem. And, but, but here's, here's what's fascinating. She was the second most popular Supreme Court justice ever nominated, right? Mm-hmm. 
that's the news story that in, 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 in a lot of, of left-leaning media, which I thought fascinating, is they wanted to talk about knuckleheaded congressmen asking crazy questions. That ain't news. Of course they're going to do that, right? <laughs> The, the the news is the news was the, the how historic of occasion it was and how popular it was amongst the amongst the electorate right like that was that was actually the news story in my opinion and and I think a lot of people buried that lead. I think you're right. I mean, they don't feature people like you who go, oh well, we'll pass you know these bills and. And, uh, you know, a lot of people I go through Congress and I don't think do much. I think there's some Florida people that, that, that I can cite, but I'm not going to tell any underage jokes, but uh, you know, it, it, what, if it leads, it bleeds, right? So, sure. you know, it's always, you know, we're always seeing my extreme left or, or your extreme right on the news and everybody goes, well, that's, that's the thing. But I, you know, I've often, when I was reading your book, I was wondering that because you, you talk a lot about that in your book. When you left Congress, you know, your reasons are your own for leaving Congress, but you know, they cited some of your issues with some of the things that Donald Trump was saying about race, about people that were in the uh, Democratic Party and stuff like that. At least that's what's cited in the stuff. And so, and so I'm almost wondering if we have to resolve that before we can overlay the utopian idea that you've, you've put forth. Sure. Look, I, what I, it's always funny, you know, I'm kind of like, what you see is what you get, right? <laughs> like this is, you know, everybody always thinks there's a different answer, right? No, the answer is the answer. And, yeah. and look, Donald Trump had no impact on my, how I did, what I did or did. And, and I would say, yes, he is, he is the manifestation of what I would call an authoritarian wing of, of the Republican party. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, and I think that is a, a wing that is not going to be, is not going to help us solve these, these generational defining challenges that I, that I talk about. The reason I left Congress is those, those, those jobs were, des- were not designed to be in forever. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, do, you know, it, it was, I would always get criticized. I, I said I wasn't for term limits because mm-hmm. if you don't like somebody, vote them out. And the same people that criticize me for that criticize me for leaving. And it's just like, wait a minute. You know, like, like I, I, I laugh. Like I wasn't in there forever. Right. And, and so, and, and also I, it's always better to have a fresh perspective, fresh experiences. Right. Look, I, I always tell people if my experiences since being out of the CIA would have, you know, I wish I would have had some of those when I was in the CIA because I probably would have done things a little bit differently. Right. And so, so again, I, I just don't think those, those positions were designed to be in forever. Maybe, and maybe we need to, you know, there's, there's a lot of other issues that I was thinking about with your book too, where I was like, you know, maybe, maybe a house, you know, one of the, they say one of the challenges with the people who run the house is you only have two years. And so you barely get in there and then you got to start running for reelection again. And maybe we need stuff. We had Tom Hartman, uh, the, the radio host on the show about three or four times now for his books. You know, he talked about, you know, several different, several different scotus decisions that have been made about you know being able to buy a politician by the richest people and corporations mm-hmm. in this country and making it so easy you know the the, the uh, there's a lot of different packs that influence this with the republican party you know you have the center for national policy the betsy devos thing and of course that that's a whole different agenda you have what is the federal society and all those different things do we need to maybe take the money out of politics is is that part of maybe utopia for your design or take away some of these other things that seem to really have issues or cause issues or do they cause issues so i i think look, 
my dad was a traveling salesman. He sold notions, right, which mm-hmm. is buttons, zippers, threads. Then him and my when he retired from that, him and my mom opened a beauty supply business, you know, where they sold, you know, shampoo, conditioners, and relaxers to to salons. And then I was a government employee, right, uh, and and so I wasn't independently wealthy, and and so my ability to raise money is what allowed me to beat a a guy who was a self funder. Right, he mm-hmm. was he was a millionaire, and he was able to he funded most of his campaign with his own money. So I had an ability to operate that way. Now, many of these super PACs, I've not seen many situations where a super PAC gets in and the opposing super PAC doesn't get in, right? So, so you have all this money, and it basically they 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 cancel each other out. <laughs> and the only people that benefit and the only people that benefit is the professional co- political class that run these entities and the the places where you place ads, whether that's digital ads or TV ads. They're yeah. the ones that benefit from the volume of, of information. Now, how you fix that, how you get that in a way where I'm still able to be an upstart insurgent campaign and go against someone who, who, who may have their own resources. That's what we have to do. And and look, a a situation where, where my campaign, like my, my general consultant is a multimillionaire, but some of my staffers on the official side that is working on behalf of the people have a difficult time buying a house in Washington, D.C., that's a problem. That's a problem with the system. So definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. You know, it, I think I think the way the 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 people who wrote the Constitution designed it was they they wanted more average people to go circulate in and out of Congress and mm-hmm. and it be represented the people. You know, you're writing your book. That's why I've been having this discussion with you. That the Republican Party needs to look more like America. And of course, as you mentioned, the Democratic Party needs to try and take care of their end. You know, and appeal to everybody. And you know, I really wish fifty percent of this this country would vote and care, and really, you know, give a damn about the Constitution. I don't, you know, they can vote any way they want, but that would be the most beautiful part. I even would love a law, you know, it says you you have to vote. What what on your book haven't we touched on? Because we're getting uh, the roundabout of the hour, and and I want to make sure we get everybody in to tease you by your book. No, look, I, look, I, I think we hit all the topics and I appreciate the time, but, but you're, 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 you know, you talk when, when I love hearing you talk about the constitution and how important that is, right? Like we always talk about this experiment called America, right? Mm-hmm. Why do we call it an experiment? We call it an, we call it an experiment because it was the only one at the time <laughs> when it was created and everybody else in the world thought it was going to fail. The next democracy was not created until 60 years later, and that was Switzerland. There are only 14 countries that have celebrated being a democracy for more than 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so this notion that a democratic society is a given is not true. And we take some of these things for granted Mm -hmm. because this is the only thing that we have ever known. And that is the danger in saying, you know, U.S. economic and military dominance is no longer guaranteed. 
We have become an exceptional nation, not because of what we have taken, but because of what we have given. And that started because we gave a helping hand after World War II to help rebuild Europe, right? And, mm -hmm. and recognize a strong Europe was important for the rest of the world. And so these are the things that have, have made us great, right? And, 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 and what I'm proposing in American Reboot is not changing those things. It's hit and reset to get back to that operating system that is based on these principles and theories that have for 247 years made us one of the the most successful uh, country on this planet. And so that's why I try to put some of these ideas forward because it requires a, a competition. And, and, and I want two strong parties to have these debates. And whether you're a Republican or Democrat or independent or don't vote, I, I think there's something I'm in this for you, everyone. Yeah, and I think I think people need to realize two parties or or maybe more in the future. I don't know. Some of the countries that have a lot of parties seem to get really kind of off the rails. I don't know, but maybe it's better. What do I know? But but we need a healthy party. I mean, I I was I was in the, I was in the GOP up until George Bush Jr. Or I'm sorry, the presidency of Dick Cheney. I'm just telling jokes here. But you know, I I I I played both sides, and I would still to this day vote for both sides because I want what's best for this country. I want the I want that constitution protected and I've learned how more important it was after January 6th uh -huh. and, and, and everything else. But yeah, you're right. People need to not take this for granted. Do you think, I mean, it seems like we're really on the dark arc. If you study fascism, you know, Pinochet, Duterte, Cuba, who am I thinking of Germany and Italy, Mussolini and stuff. It seems like we're really on a dark arc towards authoritarianism or socialism, if you want to call it that, too. And, and you know, the, the Constitution seems to be under attack. Do you do you think that, you know, we, we have a chance to pull this back from the, the, the precipice or am I smoking? Am I wrong by thinking we're, that we're in a dark place? I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right to be concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, the concentration of power in the hands of the few is a bad thing and it always has been. And the far left wants to concentrate the, the power in an entity and the far right wants to concentrate it in a individual. Mm. And, and both of these are, are, are equally bad. And, and yes, we should be concerned about these events. We should obviously be concerned about January 6th. I, look, I've, I spent a lot of time in the book explaining that. I've, I've been very clear in my opinions there. But I also, and, and look, are things going to get worse where they get better? Probably. But I actually believe that our best days are still ahead of us because I see people like you that, look, they want what's best for their families. They're willing to entertain and to listen to different ideas. They're open to a conversation and a debate. They're, that is 80% of the country. We just happen to focus on people that only are on Twitter and, and, and cable news. And that's like 14% uh, of the country. And so, so I actually am optimistic that we're going to be able to get through these times and get to a point where, where we're not as afraid mm -hmm. of the system degrading. Mm -hmm. 
You know, the I have a saying, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the saddest part of, of what we do as a humanity is we learn from the darkest parts of our experience instead of the, the brightest parts of our experience many times. You know, we, we saw how Hungary with Viktor or- Orban fell into, you know, full autocracy in 2020, I think it was. With the, with the COVID crisis, he was able to take that. The, the Hopefully, the lesson that we learn from what's going on in Ukraine in the horrors and, and tragedy of it all, you know, I mean, he's, he's embracing Putin, is that democracy can fall very quickly it can it can we can lose this great beautiful experiment you know as ben franklin said as long as you can keep it and and hopefully we're learning from the experience in ukraine and what putin is doing that supporting authoritarianism supporting these dictators you know even if you know the russians basically in my opinion they traded you know uh, prosperity wealth and money and jobs and said hey this is good well we'll put up with the authoritarian guy and we came really close to that here in this country mm-hmm. in fact i think we came within a decision of a vice president and two people in the justice department to my understanding between whether or not we live in an authoritarian rule and and so i think i think hopefully what people are are waking up to with the war in ukraine and, and like i say it's a it's a horror show that we have to hit this bottom to go Maybe authoritarians aren't that great, but hopefully we learn from this and go, yeah, we need to, we need to, you know, it's like we get reminded what every 70 or 100 years, the saying I always say, the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. And this is why we go round and round. So hopefully we get there from from what we're learning in this experience and and we get pulled back from the brink because yeah democracy as you write in your book and and i love the ideals you put in your book and 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 i and i i i want a, a healthy two-party system mm-hmm. and maybe the news needs to change maybe we need to focus people on more like you who 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 stick out like a sore thumb because they they go there they do their job they walk their talk they audio video matches and everything else so I really appreciate you coming on the show with us today, Will, and sharing your insight and your wonderful book, because I, I, I think it's a better vision for America. Look, I, I appreciate you and the questions, right? This is what makes me happy, because, you know, I, I meet people I meet people like you, and, and I think you're reflective of, of probably the majority of Americans. And so I appreciate the time and the conversation and you caring and to have these kinds of conversations as well. So thank you. Yeah, and there's a great story people should reference in your book about Beto O'Rourke and that drive you guys did across mm-hmm. the country and, and how much you guys learned about each other. I think that's a great – and what was cool is how much people were excited about politicians coming together. People want us to disagree without being disagreeable, Yeah, and that's yeah. possible. Yeah, the the competition of ideas. That's what this country was built on. Will, give us your .com so people can find you on the internet. Sure. My website is willbeheard, H-U-R-D.com. Uh, it's willbeheard, and then on all socials, I'm just Will Heard. There you go. There you go. Uh, guys, order up the book. It just came out March 29th, 2022. You can be you know, one of the first on your book club to say you read it. I really encourage you to read it. American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting big things done. And uh, you definitely want to check it out. It's a uh, number one bestseller right now in uh, general elections and political process, according to Amazon. So that's all. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Go to youtube.com for chess Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. Go to goodreads.com for chess Chris Voss. See everything we're reading and reviewing in there. All of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever those crazy kids are playing on the interwebs nowadays. Stay safe, be good to each other, and we'll see you guys next time.